This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome to our third installment in Martial Matters of the Second Seminole War, Keeping and Bearing Arms and Militia Service. In this episode, our Martial Matters guest, Jesse Marshall, will give us the ins and outs of the right to keep and bear arms in America and how that impacted the Seminole Wars. We'll examine how citizens use that right for their own protection and for service in the militia when called upon. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, Patrick. When it comes to the right to keep and bear arms, there is sometimes great misunderstanding. For instance, does the right to keep and bear arms come from the government? The Second Amendment answers your question. It says the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And for the record, it reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Yeah, it mentions the well-regulated militia, but then it says that the people have the unfringed right to keep and bear arms. The presumption, obviously, is it's the same arms that were referred to in the Militia Clause. Again, for the record, Article 1, Clause 15 of the U.S. Constitution states, the Congress shall have the power to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. And then in Clause 16, it says, the Congress shall have the power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, etc. How is keep and bear arms framed today, and how does that contrast with understanding during the Second Seminole War? Today, relative to, say, the right to keep and bear arms and the Second Amendment, the question is often posed, perhaps, that the right to keep and bear arms is necessary in order to organize a well-regulated militia. It's the opposite in Story's commentary. Joseph Story was a Supreme Court justice in the 1830s. He briefly relates the meaning of the Second Amendment. He points out that as the militia system is being abandoned or becoming more or less unpopular and political parties and the various states and the federal government were declining to even enforce the laws on the books, Story's comment is that if the militia is allowed to languish, then how will we protect the right to keep and bear arms among the general populace? And again, today, the argument is to be that the Second Amendment was that the people should have arms in order to form the militia, or as Story's point, it's a, no, the, the militia is well-regulated so the people can engage in their right to can bear arms. And if the Second Amendment was repealed? If, if the Second Amendment were to be repealed from the U.S. Constitution, it doesn't change the constitutional provisions about arms among the public in the state conscience. And of course, if all the states extinguish recognized right constitutions of their states, it still doesn't mean the right is extinguished, you see. It just means that it's no longer in jurisdiction to the federal or the state government. The Second Seminole War is an example of when citizens needed to keep and bear arms for their own protection because the war often came to their doorsteps. The public emergency in Florida required the federal and territorial authorities to employ the armed citizens of Florida in their citizen capacity to defend their property and so forth. And there were occasions in which there was no time for the militia to organize to respond to various attacks or raids. So it's not infrequent to find newspaper references, bodies of men, whether they were enrolled militiamen, 
teenagers or otherwise exempt persons that were older than 45, in other words, just a mixed bag of, would arm themselves and respond to raids in their neighborhoods and patrol and attack. They were largely been at their own behest, understood that it was a public action. How widespread was gun ownership or gun use in the 1830s? You'd be surprised at how, by the 1830s, there was a significant number of urban Americans, and even a lot of country people were too poor to own a gun. And that was a complaint even in the Western districts that a lot of the pioneers didn't have weapons. You see, we've been manipulated in a sense, I believe, by movies. We have artwork that shows Daniel Boone walking through the Cumberland Gap, and he has a rifle on his shoulder. And yes, the rifle was important, but it wasn't universal. A lot of the poor people still didn't have a gun. Because guns were expensive, and then you had to buy powder and ball. And if you were a poor person who did not engage in market agriculture, you just were engaged in, you know, you just grew enough food to feed yourself and your family, and you didn't have any cash, then if you didn't need to get one. I'm not saying that gun ownership was rare, but I don't believe it was quite as universal as our ideas suggest. What was the expectation for keeping and bearing arms in the Florida Territory during the Second Seminole War? During the Second Seminole War, we have innumerable cases that are similar because literally every settlement, every settler would be wise to have a gun. So the Seminole were, became very adept at raiding the farms. It was not infrequently the case that they met resistance by citizens of all ages and all colors. There's even a reference to a slave shooting some Seminoles in the Alachua district, I believe about 1840. I think he was hunting, and the Seminoles were evidently approaching a farm and he ambushed them. The territorial authorities encouraged all the local citizens in Florida to not only arm themselves, but to fortify their home. You speak of the castle doctrine today. As you see, at that time, it was specifically noted that it was a public issue. People fortify their home and also build blockhouses for their own home be susceptible. So in 1840, that law was passed encouraging the fortification of each homestead. What type of firearms registration was required during the Seminole Wars? During the exigencies of the Second Seminole War, the bulk of the free white citizens did not have to acquire any kind of registration or license, keep, carry, or bear arms. And evidently, the U.S. Army, in providing weapons and ammunition to East Florida settlers after, by the summer of 1841 and thereafter, the Army officer in charge of that district specifically mentions that he provided arms to all the men, white and black. How much civil violence was there during the Florida Wars? And how did an armed citizenry play an essential role? The Florida War, particularly of 1835 to 42 and that of 1855-58, the Third Civil War, or Billy Bowleg's War, both featured, beyond the military campaign, a significant amount of civil violence in the sense that you have raid and counter-raid. You have Seminoles raiding, invading. In fact, the term was used when the Seminoles passed beyond what, as far as the law was concerned, their national boundary. It was considered an invasion of the territory of Florida when the Seminoles raided into the settlement. Under that provision, the federal government called out the militia for federal purposes for several years, the predication that the counties of the territory were being invaded by the Seminole warriors. But that being said, the raids were usually a surprise, and so the individual settlers and citizens had to be ready to defend their property and their lives and families when the case of need arose. In that condition of affairs back then with a scattered population, lacking means of immediate communication, 
or even mobilization. It was frequently the case that small groups, informal groups of settlers had to organize themselves in the manner of a militia. It's like the partisan corps in the revolution. They had to mimic the militia to organize a force to contend against raids and so forth. We have to look at the Seminole side too. The Seminole did not have an army. They had a very uh, rudimentary economy. And so they themselves were predicated upon something like what we'd call a militia system uh, at best. It was considered more of a tribal system. But the Seminole were armed by and large with firearms. They used them to a great degree. The comparison is obvious and natural that the Seminole fought the regular troops of the U.S. Army on occasion much like American militia fought the British in the Revolution with similar attended successes. But it was much more difficult for the Seminole to defeat Florida citizens, even Florida militia, that were not only as well-armed as they were with rifles, but also as familiar with the backcountry, familiar with the swamps and forests. In that case, the Florida militia, even the armed citizens, could prove a match for the warriors. But what the warriors had on their side was course, the occasion of surprise. By ranging deep into the settled area, it could strike almost. In fact, during the Florida War, there were still some farms being sacked as far north, well into southern Georgia. The assumption is this was done by warriors hidden in the Okefenokee Swamp. But there was no limit to the range of a Seminole war party. They could strike at any time. So the custom becomes obvious that the people needed to be prepared to defend themselves and defend their property. But they also, of course, be prepared to answer the calls of the civil government for their military service. You look through the Florida militia compiled service records from the 1930s, again, tens of thousands of individual enlistments, almost 30,000, maybe even more from the exact number. What you'll find if you look up an individual name, you'll find the same man probably served in five or six different active duty tours during the several years of the war. But that doesn't even include his territorial service, what limited organization the territorial militia had. And, of course, it also does not include any vigilance that he kept up, fortifying his property, building a blockhouse, perhaps, uh, or even patrolling his local district while he was hunting. You know, all of that service combined is what was utilized at the Seminole. So there's a vast amount of public service done during the war by not only on the civil byway, but in battle. San Telasco, a whole company of locals congregated in Colonel Warren's force that engaged in that battle. They were not mustered and just referred to as gentlemen volunteer, but they essentially were armed citizens, besides armed people generally, which included occasions where women and children had used arms in defense of their homes. Also slaves, freedmen, also the army alone used numbers of black seminal guides as army scouts, etc. In fact, it's very difficult to find particular battles, which you don't find reference either free black men or you know, men of color of whatever legal uh, situation they were in, in some manner uh, engaged with the military forces, notably at the Battle of Dunlot in early 1836. Even though it was a defeat for the Florida militia, the account to credit black slaves that was present with the man as being one of the most valiant of the combatants. Where black men served in militia and volunteer corps in active service, for example, during the War of 1812, it was Major Dakin's battalion of free men of color that volunteered for U.S. service during the Battle of New Orleans. But they were volunteers. They weren't technical militia, although they were militia in Louisiana. Whereas the United States law limited to militia for federal purposes to free white men in 1845, 
In North Carolina, for example, until 1835, the militia of North Carolina included all free men, including Negroes. South Carolina's militia law excluded Negroes from the ranks, but included them as musicians and pioneers. In fact, all the free black men in many southern states had to so serve with the various militia corps, if not in the ranks as pioneer musicians. Most southern states where slavery was active in the early 90s, there's lots of references to musicians of the various companies were frequently slaves. And uh, during the Second Seminole War, we see on the muster rolls of many of the Southern Mission Volunteer Units that came to Florida, the musicians were frequently noted as Negroes on the muster rolls, either slaves or freemen. Going back to the American Revolution, one of the only battles that occurred in Florida, probably the most significant, was Alligator Creek Bridge in the summer of 1778. Elijah Clark's Georgians attacked a fortification along the Johns River. Among the dead, the British noted the handful of American dead that were left behind Negro. So it's also important to recognize that regardless of the political debates the 1830s on, I don't think there's much question that the peace states included free blacks, at least during the federal period. It was pointed out even during the time that the Constitution was enacted, in some states there were free black men that had the voting capability. While I've yet to find a specific reference, free black voter voting relative to the Constitution at that time, scholars commented they had no doubt that during the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, that there were free black voters in some states that voted to ratify it. Since 1865, that issue has been dealt with. There was a history from the revolution on of military service by black men in the U.S. Army. It may not have been as numerous as the free white men, but during the American Revolution, slaves were inducted into the Continental Army, also various corps and even partisan corps throughout the country. For the most part, the slaves were enlisted under the express understanding that they would receive their freedom for their military service. In other cases, men were liberated in order to serve in the military forces of the various states and states. It was accepted that slaves had the capacity to bear arms, and in general, the volume on the laws of slavery and bondage in the United States by John C. Hurd, published in 1858, which basically is a compilation of all the various slave codes of the various states over time, demonstrate that chattel slavery was such that individual slaves was understood to have the capacity, but the government didn't cognize them. Instead, their rights were cognized in the form of passing laws binding upon the slaveholder. For example, it would be laws that stated that slaveholders had to provide a minimum amount of clothing to their bondsmen each year, etc., uh, etc. Et so I bring this up because in the case of Florida, the territorial government didn't have the jurisdiction to arm slaves, but instead it did have jurisdiction to pass a law, have slave owners arm them. Now, Florida is a territory, mind you, so it's entirely under the provisions of congressional control. So all the acts that were made by the territorial legislature were subject to approval by Congress alone. But in the states, there are some varying differences. For example, in Tennessee, up until 1835, all free men in the state of Tennessee had the unrestricted rights relative to bearing arms, and that included freedmen or emancipated slaves and so forth. That was amended in 1835, where these rights were limited to free white men. Similarly, in North Carolina, up till 1835, 
free black men served in the militia, in the ranks even, rather than just as militia drummers and musicians. But in 1835, there was a constitutional provision in North Carolina that excluded all but free white men in the ranks of the militia of North Carolina. So there was a change from the federal period through the 1830s to exclude even free black men from militia service and also to make it more difficult for the keep or carry arms, as the Florida law put it. They had to be licensed in order to do so by a local magistrate. What were the requirements in Florida for keep and bear arms and or for militia service? Territorial law required every free white man within the territory in forty-five to enroll with his local militia company. And the law required you to have a firelock weapon, although the territory did allow you had a shotgun, nothing more than shotgun. You could appear at muster with a shotgun, and that would be accepted. The descriptions we have from the time, including the excellent volume Cracker Times and Pioneer Lives, edited several years ago. Right, James Denham and Cantor Brown, Jr., That excellent volume testimony there mentions that the average Florida citizen, considering the nature of the sparse settlement, always rode around with his rifle or his shotgun wherever they went. Mentioned going into, say, a confectionery or a grog shop. The fellows would lean their guns on the outside to go in and so forth, common courtesy. With regard to the right to keep and bear arms, were Florida's territorial laws much different from state laws? Florida was a territory during the 20s, 30s, and early 40s. I have reviewed some of the laws of the territory of Florida in that time period. Besides the individual annual reference, the acts of the territorial legislature, there is an 1839 digest of all the territorial laws that compiled by the former territorial governor, Duval. And the various acts of the territorial laws are not dissimilar than what you'd find in most states. Carriage and bearing of arms was perfectly legal for all free men within the territory. An exception was free black men and free mulattoes had to have a license from the local magistrates or carry bearing arms, but they're keeping and carrying public. They had to be licensed. How were slaves affected by these laws? There was a law, of course, against slaves having guns. By law, territory allowed slave owners to arm their slaves in raids and so forth. How did the licensing regime mesh with slave codes about bearing arms? The license generally for arms, yes, that's where you come to the slave codes in various states. Most states didn't want slaves to have weapons in any sense. Now, when you read the slave narratives, even before the war, you'll see references to slaves hunting and sometimes even having guns. What becomes evident is state laws are relative to slaves in public. If a master gave his slave a gun to hunt with, that was his business. But it only became a public issue, for example, if a patrol or something came upon the slave with a gun in public, it would disarm him. For example, in the territory of Florida, if a slave was found in public with a gun, it would be taken from him. The assumption was, since slaves couldn't own property, that a gun that was in the possession of a slave would have been the property of his owner. That was the presumption. And that that property would be confiscated for allowing the slave to go about in public and be caught with it. But that being said, there are slave narratives and slaves hunting whatnot with guns. It just obviously was done either on the private property or in the backwoods where necessarily any public concern about rebellion or insurrections or whatnot. 
that in the slave codes in the early 19th century, even the slaves had the limited right of self-defense. For example, in some states, I've seen specific reference that it was lawful for a slave to kill a white man that was feloniously assaulting him without particular cause. And of course, this is a limited right because the slave did not have a similar right to defend himself against his master. But again, it's notable that even a slave had the right of self-defense encoded even slave codes to even the limited degree that it was. I would refer interested parties to the memoir of Frederick Douglass and how the limitation affected the conditions of slaves. In other words, cruel masters taking advantage of that limitation. So did the Second Amendment include the right to keep and bear arms by slaves as well? The Second Amendment was not considered as binding upon slaves necessarily. They were not free men. It's notable to see that the right of self-defense was yet slaves had the recognized lawful right of self-defense to that limited degree, even though they had no right necessarily the use of weapons or arms in the carriage there. Why do you think this was? To me, it strikes me that that's because the self-defense of the slave was not considered as necessarily cognized by the government, the self-defense of the citizen. That being said, I'd also like to point out that during the American Revolution, several states organized slaves and military and militia forces of their state. So that was a governmental power. The slave could be liberated by the war powers, of, and it was done during the Revolution. So a slave's liberation through war service was cognized by the states, even at the time of the nation's founding? During the ratifying debate in Virginia particularly, it was pointed out that the specific writing of the Constitution made it clear to them that the people of the United States were delegating to the federal government by its ratification that the people of the United States could liberate slaves through the war powers of the government. This was admitted even by the then governor of Virginia. Right. Patrick Henry, who said he smelled a rat and refused to go as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. That power was subsequently enacted during the 1860 Emancipation Proclamation, effective January 1st, 1863. Federal government did employ war powers to essentially liberate the slaves, although it was only in effect for those that were in uh, what the federal government considered rebelling states. It was only with the 13th Amendment after the war that slavery universally went away with. But that being said, it's important to notice that the war power and individual potential for rights of the slaves were recognized. Through the war power, the slave could be converted to a free man without the permission of the slaveholder. That was recognized and was a powerful method by which the death of institution of slavery was announced through those war powers. That was a constitutional war power. We'll take that from Patrick Henry. Mr. Henry was not enthusiastic about that because he felt that that war power somehow might be used against the southern states. Jesse, we've talked about who can carry. How about what they can carry? Were all arms acceptable for open carry? Generally in the territory. Pocket pistols, bowie knives, and sword cane were disliked. And so if you're going to sell those sorts of things, there was a territorial law that you had to put up a bond of $200 and then seek permission in order to sell them. Also, if you were to carry such arms, you had to do it open. And even then, you had to pay, say, a $10 license for open carry of knives. There was no fee to carry arms generally, like a firelock, shotgun, rifle, weapons that were essentially those used by the militia. 
Was the fine or licensing constitutional? I don't really know because it didn't go to court, so I don't know what their opinion would be. I would hazard that since it didn't go to court, that one of two things. Either they did not consider the license an infringement, or they did not consider those particular weapons as arms. If they had to, how would they justify the prohibitions on those pocket pistols, bowie knives, and sword canes? They probably would argue, of course, in that territorial laws case, see, in the territory of Florida, being a territory, all of its laws were subject to Congress's approval. And so far as I could tell, Congress didn't have a problem with Florida's territorial law charging a licensee to openly carry knives, pistols, and sword canes. But you understand that most of the violence committed by civil violence is usually using arms of that type or weapons of that kind. And obviously, they wanted to discourage their carriage and use. Why weren't they considered constitutional carry firearms or arms? They also were useless for militia purposes. Since technically the law said that the militia formed a principally an infantry force, pistols and bowie knives were not particularly useful. The habit, though, had grown. If you're not unfamiliar, during the opening year of the Civil War, the Confederate Army particularly, vast numbers of the volunteers showed up with bowie knives and his pistol. General Lee, among others, had to quietly explain those are useless, just get rid of them. And so they disappeared after the first year of the war. Since everyone technically was free to arm themselves in a manner with a saber, with a rifle, a musket, whatever they wanted, they just didn't see the need to carry a weapon that you could conceal unless you were a gambler that probably wanted to cause somebody harm. Wouldn't there be a police force that could handle some of these disturbances? There was no police force back then. There was nobody to call, and consequently, law enforcement on the streets, if you want to use the term, I guess, the instantaneous necessity for law enforcement fell upon the individual. What entity determined what arms were appropriate for a muster? Arms are mentioned in the Constitution a couple of times, and if you look at the uh, Militia Clause of the Constitution, the federal government, for example, has the power to determine what arms militia was to have and you know you look then down at well what does the militia do with these arms well it repels invasion enforces the laws of the union and it resists insurrection well obviously you see that the militia is designed is a single force that has a multitude of purposes you can see that arms or whatever serves those three purposes so there might be particular weapons that the militia could use to suppress an insurrection like riot equipment in the modern era, correct? But that riot equipment would not be suitable to repel an invasion, would it? I suppose you could argue that there could be specific arms for specific purposes, but it strikes me that the conception at that time was that arms were the particular weapons that was all of those purposes. In other words, and I say this because the 1792 law only required the militiamen to have a single arm. didn't say he had to arm himself with three different arms for the three purposes of the militia. It said he had to have a single one, and it was essentially identical or superior to the common military arms of the time, because a rifle was considered superior to a common musket, and it was, in a sense, used in a different way tactically. If you arm yourself with a common weapon that would be useful for the militia to repel a foreign invasion, then certainly that same militia would be capable of suppressing insurrection and enforcing the law with those same military arms. As far as keep and bear arms and militia, how did the law work in practice? 
So we have the law, and the law was from 1792 for federal purpose. The militia consisted of all free white men, 18 to 45, and they had to have a musket or rifle, and they had to have an ammunition pouch or cartridge box. They had to have a knapsack. They had to appear at muster or parade of their local militia companies, so armed and equipped, and they were subject to being called forth by the president for the purposes laid out in the Constitution, these repelling invasion, resisting insurrections, and enforcing the laws of the Union. Now, the individual state had generally the authority over the same militia. They had to organize and arm them in the manner that the federal law required and see that they were so. Some of the states were better about overseeing that than others. From various readings, it appears that Massachusetts, hands down, was the foremost in organizing its militia according to the federal laws and its own state laws. South Carolina may be coming in second. Most of the states fell somewhere well below those standards. As the population of the United States increased to the early 18th century, the number of weapons as well. From 1808, the federal government recognized it would be better if there was a better standardization among the militia's weapons rather than just the hodgepodge of Revolutionary War relics, hunting guns, and whatever else have you. From 1808, the U.S. government spent something less than a quarter of a million dollars a year to procure muskets, rifles, artillery, and distribute it to the various states for the use of their militia. The states could, of course, stockpile those arms for active duty state service, or they could distribute them to the various militia companies. You'd have, say, certain incorporated militia companies of volunteers who would have their own armory, keep state weapons at their armory. There are other cases, perhaps, where the guns were distributed to the members of these militia corps. But by and large, a lot of the stuff was stockpiled, was most needed. And the consequence was that at your average militia muster, the men would show up, if not according to the letter of the law, would try to show up according to the spirit of the law, because the militia incorporated everyone from the wealthy to the poorest. You'd have men show up that had no property to speak of, and so having a gun wasn't going to be useful to them, so fellows like that might show up with a cornstalk in lieu of a musket or a rifle. And the intent of most state laws was that if you did that, you, you could do that, uh, but you would have to pay a fine uh, for having showed up without the weapons. Also, if you didn't go to your muskets, you would pay a fine. Some people just paid the fine. Others would seek exemption from militia service by law. Unfortunately, mostly what we have today in the historical pantheon is a wide variety of complaints about the militia. In other words, observations of their lack of uniform. Not only a lack of uniform, but Americans generally dress well. And so many of the European people that would see militia unit parades with July had nothing but contempt for the appearance of these militia corps. Many of them had no coats or you know, ragged hats or, you know, raccoon caps or whatever, barefooted men, gentlemen in tailcoats with neck cravats next to a barefooted teenager with no hat or coat or vest or neck cloth. But that was the intent of the militia to incorporate every able-bodied man in that sense. But the law of 1790 for U.S. purposes limited it to free white men states. Tell us how the militia adapted for ceremonial purposes if they didn't have all the accoutrements, including the rifles or muskets. As far as the weapons and equipment goes, we have an example in the 1820s, former Major General the Marquis de Lafayette 
who had served in America during the Revolution, toured the United States in the mid-1820s, enormously popular tour because the revolutionary generation was passing on, and Lafayette had been a very young man when he served in the Revolution, and so even though he was getting older, he was still sprightly enough to travel across continents. So literally every town, every village, every grog shop on his route, people would come out to pay homage. And here's where the militia assembled, front and center. The occasion noted of a militia company, uh, I believe it was in Missouri, marching up toward the town, and the marquee carriage is riding out of the city. The militia company halted. The captain looked at his rather ragged command. He formed them into two ranks. And he noticed that there were men that didn't have guns, but sticks and so forth. And he ordered them into the rear rank. The front rank all showed weapons. When the marquee pulled up, he stopped. And his driver stopped, and he stepped out. The captain, you know, had the men present arms and so forth. That captain was well thought of as having a significant amount of militia military skill in that he was smart enough to tell the men without guns to get in the rear rank. <laughs> it wouldn't be so noticeable. Poor quality firearms plagued the U.S. Army as far back as the American Revolution. American troops in the Revolution were usually rather poorly armed as it was. I've seen reference that even the French weapons that were imported were frequently significantly subpar in terms of their quality and condition. When several hundred stand of French weapons were imported to Charleston to outfit part of the Georgia Continental Brigade in 1877, Placed in the order book, uh, Colonel Elbert of the 2nd Georgia Regiment, he noted that the overwhelming majority of those guns were unfit for any military use and totally unable to fire. They're really bad shape. Arms are mentioned in the Constitution a couple of times, and if you look at the uh, militia clause, the, the federal government, for example, has the power to determine what arms militia was to have and you, know, you look then down at, well, what does the militia do with these arms? Well, it repels invasion, enforces the laws of the Union, and it resists insurrection. Well, obviously, you see that the militia is designed as a single force that has a multitude of purposes. You can see that arms are whatever serves those three purposes. So there might be particular weapons that the militia could use to suppress an insurrection, like riot equipment in the modern era, correct? But that riot equipment would not be suitable to repel an invasion, would it? I suppose you could argue that there could be specific arms for specific purposes, but it strikes me that the conception at that time was that arms were the particular weapons that was all of those purposes. In other words, and I say this because the 1792 law only required the militiamen to have a single arm. It didn't say he had to arm himself with three different arms for the three purposes of the militia. It said he had to have a single one, and it was essentially identical or superior to the common military arms of the time, because a rifle was considered superior to a common musket, and it was, in a sense, used in a different way tactically. If you arm yourself with a common weapon that would be useful for the militia to repel a foreign invasion, then certainly that same militia would be capable of suppressing insurrection and enforcing the law with those same military arms. The federal government's generosity supplying firearms for the state arsenals led some militiamen who were mustering to expect the federal government would issue them individual firearms. There was confusion on that score. Again, from 1808, the federal government provided a certain number of federal weapons to these states based on their militia population that were enrolled and organized. And that seems to have given some people the idea that they were due federal weapons. 
federal government and subsequently providing arms in the quantities it did after 1808 seemed to have confused that to where many in the public felt it was the federal government's. The federal government says I should have a gun. The federal government should give me a gun. And if the feds don't give me a gun, then I'm not going to have one. If the state wants me to have one, they can give me one. Otherwise, what was it like in the Florida Territory? Well, in the territory of Florida, when it was organized in the 1820s, it was a case of one volunteer militia company forming in one of the East Florida counties, and they reported that they had made up an invitation of the U.S. Army's entry address, but that their weapons were of odd calibers, were completely unsuitable for use with the tactics. In other words, they had a mixed bag of shotguns, fouling piece, and whatever, and consequently, they couldn't use them in effect to do the manual of arms that are in the tactics. So they were requesting that the territorial governor request muskets for them from the United States. And, of course, the territorial governor had informed them that, well, the United States doesn't provide weapons on request. That's not how it works. Now, at the present time, today, many National Guards, if not all of them, employ federal weapons to a degree. But the distinction there is that the modern National Guard is a twofold force, the individual personnel and the unit they belong to, a part of the U.S. Army's reserve forces, essentially, besides being the organized component of the state militia, didn't have that dichotomy 200 years ago. What did the law say about an armed militiaman? The militiaman, by law, he had to have a weapon. There was no reference as to how he got it. There was no requirement that you purchase one. No requirement that you make one. It just said that you really, you had to have one. If you didn't, you're subject to paying a fine. Now, if the fine was cheaper than buying a musket or a rifle, probably many people paid it. And most of the state laws required that when fines were collected by the sheriffs, that the fine money would go back into the militia regimental fund to pay for flags and maybe even guns. The intent was that any fines collected for militia failures was to make good the failure. In other words, they were aware that out of any regimental-sized district of several hundred men, that not all of them are going to have muskets. But if a certain number of those people don't muster, or they muster without the requisite weapons, and they all pay their fines, and potentially over a period of a few years, there could be enough money to buy guns. So theoretically, the system that was intended to correct the shortfall when called up, a militiaman could bring a rifle or a musket or a sword. What would happen to the citizen who showed up for his militia muster without arms and without any intent of bearing arms? Our founders were quite clear that in the Constitution, all these issues are predicated on the idea of people arming themselves and protecting their property, etc., and also engaging in civic defense and also militia service, etc. There was always the references, even among the states, that... In our system, if you scrupled against bearing arms, they couldn't make you do it. In other words, if you just absolutely did not want to bear arms in any fashion or form, uh, our system was not predicated to punish you for it. You would either pay a fine for not doing so or not engaging in militia service, for example. But in your private capacity, of course, you would just not bear arms. In your militia capacity, if you didn't show up with a weapon, you could become a musician or join a pioneer corps. But otherwise, if you scrupled against any kind of military service, you could pay a fine, which was the intent. You could seek legal exemption from the militia. Of course, a citizen may not want to be reliant on the government to provide him with a firearm. That's, again, part of the case. When President Jefferson 
supported the 1808 Act and signed it into law to provide federal funding and arms to the sport militia. One of his points was that the militia should be better armed, should be at least as well armed as the regular army. That was part of the intent there. For example, let's go back to historical precedent. When the capital of Georgia was taken by the British in December 1778 and royal government was reinstituted over the state of Georgia, all of the existing militia, as it was organized by the state, then was subsequently reorganized into a royal force. Consequently, Robert Sallet, for example, in South Georgia, is essentially on his own, among other patriots in the Georgia backcountry and head in Midwest or North, etc. The armed and organized militia of Georgia essentially became a royal force again. So a certain number of Georgia militia that would not bow to the British particularly under General Elijah Clark, formed a partisan force that left Georgia and hung around the Carolina backcountry during the occupation period, occasionally raiding and also fighting it out with Georgia militia and British loyalist troops around Augusta, etc. There is some reference that some of Clark's partisans came south toward way Georgia where Sallet was operating. There were occasions where Sallet was joined by fellow patriots that's an interesting case in point. All the weapons and equipment that the Congress and the state of Georgia had provided essentially became British militia equipage after 1779. The patriots that remained in Georgia were on their own again as far as armament, where from ever they got them uh, or whatever they could find. And that confirms your point. If there is no federal or state government to organize the militia, they'll organize themselves and they'll arm themselves from whatever ways they can. To illustrate this in practice, tell us about the American Revolutionary War soldier, James Collins. There's a memoir by a young partisan veteran of the Southern Camp. This one young partisan veteran mentions that he didn't have a gun. He was a teenager, so to join the partisans, his mother made him a hunting shirt, and he went to a blacksmith. He got some scrap metal from farm tools, and he had a blacksmith and a crude sword. When he rode forth with the partisans under Sumter, had a sword, and later he got a leather cap that maybe could protect his head. We'll notice when you read about the Southern Campaign, not infrequently, the battles were severe butcheries of hand-to-hand fighting because not only among the Americans, but many of the royal militia were poorly armed with swords. You have two occasions. Lee's Partisan Legion, which was accompanied by a group of American partisans. Partisan Legion of Lee were continentals, but... They wore a, uh, a light uniform that looked very much like the American volunteer under Tarleton. And so they came upon a militia unit on a back road, and they rode up past each other. Suddenly, someone noticed to Colonel Lee that they were in the royal service because of the color of the cockade on the end of their hats. And they're riding past each other. Obviously, this loyal militia unit assumed this was more of Tarleton's men, fellow Britons. On a signal, Lee's men drew their swords and immediately started hacking their antagonists that were just opposite on the other side of the road. It was said that quite a number of men lost hands. There was a lot of bad blood about that. Many of the locals evidently complained that many of those royal militia were actually patriots just kind of getting by. It was rather ungentlemanly to hack them up like without giving them the chance to surrender and change sides. <laughs> but anyway, we have also the Battle of Waxhaws where Tarleton and his British Legion of American troops used their sabers to bloody effect against the Abraham Buford's Continentals, sabering them to death. So where there was a lack of guns, 
Various swords were employed in this great and painful and bloody effect. To ensure a well-regulated militia, government needed to muster its militiamen to see what arms they actually had, with the expectation that those who would muster would bring their own weapons. That's a different take from today. We come full circle to Justice Story's comment. Opposite of today's rationale, his view at that time, in the 1830s, while the general universal militia system was falling into political disrepair, his concern was, he's reflecting, I think, the larger view of the majority at that time of public men that were constitutional scholars. His concern was, well, if we don't have the well-regulated militia system and enforce it, how will we ensure that the people are armed? And so, again, that's the opposite of the modern take, which is, well, the people had to be armed in order to form the militia. Well, that's the modern view. And again, back in the 1830s, the right to keep and bear arms, the intent was that it would be employed by the larger part of the citizenry. And understand that at that time, since most men were in the militia and you had to muster, and when you mustered, you had to come with a weapon. You had to come with the arms that were required. Well, when you mustered, it was usually by county and by, for example, in the territory of Florida, most counties comprised a single regiment. So the, the 10 companies of the regiment would divvied up by district. You know, like we today we have school districts. Then they had a militia company district called a beat. And so you had a company day. So everybody in your village or immediate neighborhood would show up for their militia musters, and you're all armed. You're all armed like soldiers, practically, in conformity with the law, so that you knew that your neighbors were armed. Your local banker is the first sergeant, and the greengrocer is the captain. Your file partner is the neighbor you've been feuding with over a property dispute for the last five years, you see? But you're all armed, and you all know it. point back then was arms control meant nothing. Gun control meant nothing then in that sense. What was important was the control of the citizen. Citizen learned civics through the militia system because, again, a militiaman comes out with whatever weapons he had. He could borrow a gun. He could bring his own, etc. Or if he was in a certain unit, he might receive a government one. But you're subject to being called out for posses. You're subject to active military duty with the state and also active duty with the federal government all for being enrolled in that single company of rustic in your various district. The keeping and bearing of arms in that sense made it easier to form the militia so that even where the militia was badly organized, the intent was to organize it. So in that sense, yes, you need the public to be armed in order to organize the militia if the government is able to arm it. And as John Marshall said, if the government can't arm it, we'll arm it ourselves. The federal government requires militiamen who muster to carry firearms. But as we've established, the federal government didn't necessarily promise to issue those firearms for the militiamen to carry, nor did it specify what firearm was appropriate, although the states might add a requirement. When the federal government said you had to have at least a musket or a rifle, it didn't mean that the state and its laws, the state technically was the one that regulated the militia. Uh, the federal constitution only gives the federal government the authority to actually govern the militia that's in federal service while it is in federal service. And it was understood that that meant like following the articles of war, being necessarily following the regulations of the army. At the state level, the states could pass laws that require even superior arms, even superior to those of what the federal government required. To give an example, 
In the territory of Florida, as I mentioned previously, the territorial law allowed the militia to muster common shotguns. They could muster with rifles or muskets, but common shotguns would be allowed for common muster. Offhand, one would say, well, that seems to contradict with the federal law of 792 that requires a muscular rifle very specifically. It doesn't necessarily contradict it because it says you should have a muscular rifle, but it's for the territorial purposes, you can have a shotgun. And uh, what we find during the Second Seminole War is that shotguns were much preferred as a weapon, nature of the combat and patrolling here in Florida. For example, the U.S. government purchased hundreds of shotguns due to various commands to use on patrol in Florida. The dragoons who carried Hull's rifled carbines, according to Private Lynch, many times on patrol, they preferred to carry common muskets. They could fire buckshot out of a smoothboard barrel, like a shotgun. The Seminole were usually on the scene and fired from ambush. A shotgun was considered a valuable weapon for Florida's environment. In that sense, the shotgun was not a stopgap weapon as far as meeting the federal requirement. It was actually a superior weapon for use in the Florida environment. So the territorial law allowed shotguns. And besides that, most shotguns or fouling piece could fire a musket ball as well. Technically, you could argue the point if you're a barracks room lawyer that, well, it fires a musket ball. So, so that's something to keep in mind as well. The state perfectly free to establish specific laws relative to the arms of their militia. And this is evident, too, besides the constitutional provision that allows the federal government and Congress particularly to provide for the arms, the discipline, and the organization of the militia of the state. The federal law of 1792 recommends a particular organization, militia, and the companies, battalions, regiments. When you read the various state militia laws that by and large are intended to organize in conformity with that federal law, you'll find that it doesn't just reiterate the federal law, or it words parts of the provisions differently. And so that's another case in point. The state is not violating the federal law by not repeating it. The state is bound to enact that federal law. It's also free within its own legal jurisdiction to be very more specific, in fact. The 1792 Act is not very specific at all. It's very vague. I have a feeling that sometimes people read that law and they assume that, well, that's kind of vague. Well, yes, because the intent was that the states would fill in any necessary gaps in the legislation and organization. So while federal law recommends certain things, you got to go to the state laws so the state would make a decision about that. And although the states might require a militiaman to show up with a firearm, they did keep ample supplies of firearms on hand for just such use. Besides state distribution, there were federal arsenals throughout the country that could be tapped for arms. By the 1830s, Besides the large-scale issue of guns to state federal weapons, the federal government itself had enormous stockpiles growing annually of stored weapons in the various federal arsenals. So you had state arsenals and you had federal arsenals. The federal arsenals were scattered around the country, and they not only stockpiled the brand-new stuff, but they stockpiled the massive quantities of Revolutionary War and War of 1812 stockpiles. So that by the 1830s, the militia and volunteer corps of the states organized for federal service. For the most part, they would just be provided with federal weapons for their federal service. For the most part. Not, not universally, but for the most part. How did that understanding lead to controversy? Particularly in Virginia, it was brought up that the way the Second Amendment was written, 
has finally adopted that it seemed to imply that the federal government was responsible for arming the militia. John Marshall and Madison and others said incorrectly. They had a debate about this. And of course, the debate's still ongoing, but the debate seemed to come down to this. Most of the state constitutions have very similar provisions about the right to keep and bear arms, some of them virtually identical to the federal government. Suggestion by some of the anti-federalists was the way that the Second Amendment is written since the Constitution of the United States essentially is the supreme law that seems to extinguish the state's constitutional provisions on keeping and bearing arms and their own militia laws. And John Marshall, for one, argued, no, that's not the case. That, in fact, the federal and state government's separate constitutional provisions about the people's right to keep and bear arms, etc., that these are concurrent powers. I recall specifically an occasion where some of the leading lights of the anti-federalists were arguing that significantly, and John Marshall replied that they kept ignoring that point of concurrent power, and they said, no, it's clearly right here that if the federal government doesn't give guns, then who will? Because insinuating the federal government has the power to arm the militia, if it so chooses to do so, that takes that power from the state to the people. And John Marshall's point was, no, it's a concurrent power. And if the federal government either cannot or will not arm people, the states will do it. And obviously, concurrently, if the states don't do it, then the people will arm themselves. The larger issue coming up in those debates then was over concurrent power between the states and the federal government. I think I'm following you on concurrent powers. How about an example? It's obvious to everyone that the states and the federal government have a concurrent power over taxation, right? If the federal government wants to tax cigarettes, perhaps it can. If the state wants to tax them as well, a separate state tax, then it can. So that's a concurrent power. And so Marshall thought it was worth arguing that point. Suddenly, some of these parties were arguing if the Second Amendment was adopted as written, as it is written, that it places all the power of armament of both the citizenry and the militia in the hands of the federal government. Marshall's point was, no, it, it doesn't. If, for example, the federal government in some manner does in the right to keep and bear arms among the people or, or doesn't arm the militia, then the states still have their current power to do. And again, go back to the revolution as an example, because significant one. The state's government suspended by various British occupations and raids and so forth, where the Continental Congress was to support the militia or the people, and the states had to do it themselves, and then the states couldn't do it. The people had the power themselves to arm themselves and to do what? To restore law and order, you see. That's the great distinction, because if there was a worst-case scenario where people under arms were not supported by the militia or the military or the federal government in any way. It is not that they didn't form a separate government. The intent is that they would restore civil government. Jesse, you alluded to this for the mustered individual. Militia service could be a civics education. Understand that at that time there were no police forces, not to speak of. There was the rudiments of police forces in some of the cities. But almost every larger town, smaller town, rural district, there is no police forces. You had the sheriff. If someone was resisting the laws of the state with force, the sheriff would call on the local militia company, and they would form a posse with whatever guns they had. If it was a shotgun or a rifle, it didn't matter, as long as they were armed was the important point. On the federal level, if militia is called out to enforce the laws of the United States, say a U.S. Marshal, he could call on the same militia company or to fall in, and he could muster them into federal service to enforce U.S. laws. 
In the same mode, they could enforce state laws by the direct command of the governor. This is a militia system took the same man and put him in this situation. He is a citizen of the United States. He has the right to keep and bear arms as a citizen. But at the same time, he has, when called for, if he's within the laws, if he's 18 to 45 and he fits into the specific laws in force at the time, that same man would be subject to acting as posse comitatus when necessary for local law enforcement. He's subject to calling forth by the state, and he's also subject for active on the call of the president. A rather significant civics lesson just to be enrolled in the militia at the time. It's but cold iron. There's no one to wield it. Clearly, the army something of a public sword, too. It's interesting how he made that juxtaposition that the public sword, in other words, the public should be armed. You can have an army if you want, but consideration about an army is logistics, not necessarily its arms, weapons, fighting camp. And Hamilton himself studied logistics, or some of his personal ones are filled with commentaries about the horsepower of an individual soldier, how much food he can carry. Right, even in the Federalist Papers alone, Hamilton posits about when he's regarding the moment, the Second Amendment and the Militia Clause, Hamilton brings up generally accepted scientific maximum number of a population that attained as an army proportionable to its general population. One of the things that struck me reading that was that offhand, the Second Amendment is clear, and the Militia Clause alone, is that a proportion of the American public isn't enough to defend the republic in their view. The entire population is a, a party to it. Jesse, we've got much more to cover. For instance, what does it mean to say citizens of a free state? What does it mean to say that the right to keep and bear arms is supreme law? And how have the scholars weighed in? And how was the right to keep and bear arms an essential element of the Armed Insurrection Act of 1842? We'll cover that and much more in our next episode when Jesse Marshall returns. Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us once again for the Seminole Wars Authority. Well, I thank you, Patrick. I hope that I've made comments that might actually be useful for your podcast and might be useful to some of your listening public. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.